Welcome to the No Normal. The No Normal Podcast is a special presentation coming to you from New Music Edmonton. Thank you for joining us for this month's array of conversations, music, and special features. For more information about our organization's programming and events, look us up on social media or visit our website, newmusicedmonton.ca. New Music Edmonton respectfully acknowledges that this celebration of creativity was produced on Treaty 6 territory. Amiskwichiwaskaigan is the traditional gathering place of the many indigenous peoples whose histories, languages, and cultures continue to influence and enrich our community. We further acknowledge that it was the indigenous peoples of Treaty 6 who established the principles for, and have remained exemplars of, the respectful and caring use of this land for the purposes of art, livelihood, and spirituality. It is from these principles that New Music Edmonton has sought and will continue to seek partnerships, inspiration, and learning. Welcome to Episode 4 of NME's The No Normal Podcast. I'm your host, Oscar Zebart. This episode features an interview between audiovisualist Gary James Joins and artist Sidney Lancaster, along with music from Joins. We'll also hear from the co-artistic directors of New Works Calgary, Leslie Hinger and Rebecca Bruton. That was an excerpt from All I Dreamt Twice as Much by composer Rebecca Bruton. 
In spring 2020, Bruton and composer Leslie Hinger were appointed co-artistic directors of New Works Calgary. Their appointment marks a turning point for New Works Calgary, coming as it has in the midst of a global pandemic. This is a period where the very idea of what can, could, and should be new music is being reconsidered, while new ways forward are being charted. Our own artistic director, NME's Ian Crutchley, met with Hanger and Bruton to discuss some of the directions New Works Calgary will be taking under their leadership. I think it's safe to say that in the Canadian new music community, cooperative artistic directorships aren't the norm. Could you give us a little sense of how you came together to to form this cooperative? When I moved back to Alberta, I was living in Vancouver for a few years. Uh, My friend Jason Dole, who's a composer, had recommended I get in touch with Leslie. And I think while he was texting that, I was in my office at the BAMP Center and Leslie happened to walk by because she was in a residency at the time. And then I was applying to the position. I think I was really wary about applying to it. I felt like I could potentially bring something to it and I felt really excited about it. I had reached out to Leslie to ask a question about one of her pieces because we had to make a a season proposal as part of our application. And Leslie revealed to me that she was also putting me on her season proposal because she was applying as well. We just kind of talked about it that maybe we could do a better job overall if we were doing it together. And I think we both felt we had a pretty strong vision for where we could take the organization. And we felt like our visions and our values were really well aligned and that we felt that we could successfully work together. And then I think there were some ethical and values conversations around how a co-artistic directorship, in a way it felt like a a feminist approach or we're both interested in more non-hierarchical approaches and this was collaborative and relational and a good way to keep one another accountable because we have to discuss everything so we have to co-consent to everything which means more time talking through things but I think it makes for a more accountable team. Would a typical idea be that all of the artistic decisions are mutual, or do you divide and say that you'll do one show, Rebecca will do another? Pretty much everything is mutual. Rebecca and I, at least with this season, planned all of it together. Like we pooled all of our ideas for everything that we thought would be cool, everybody who'd approached us, everybody we wanted to approach. And then just completely did it together to see what would work with the exception of the podcast that Rebecca has been hosting. She did still consult with me on the artistic direction. So I was a part of those conversations, but it is her baby and it's been amazing. And I've been really loving hearing it. Yes. And regards to the podcast, congratulations. It's really fantastic as a first example of the work that you're going to be doing. When you were talking about taking up the position, what did you imagine as being sort of a typical season profile in terms of 
types of concerts, types of venues, artists, those kinds of things? When we talked about how we would organize future seasons, we tried to find not a formula, but a bit of a balance between all of the sorts of performances that we would enjoy going to, as well as events that are going to strengthen our relationships with the community. We talked about the value of bringing in big name performers or, or bigger name ensembles that maybe wouldn't normally come through Calgary. And then having that balance with, say, a, a large scale community engagement piece where um, the creation of the work itself would involve collaborating with the community. And it could be in public, it would be free of cost, like having something like that. And then also having smaller performances that could engage local artists, that could maybe be a little more experimental and to really have a wide variety of different aesthetics and genres represented in it. Show respect to the field that we're in and our love of contemporary new music while also challenging the idea of what is concert music and how can we distance hierarchical elements pull it away from academia a little bit and have it just be about the music itself. Calgary is a very distinct community, not only within Canada, but actually even within Alberta. How would you see the role of New York's Calgary within the larger artistic scene in Calgary, more specifically the music scene? One of my values for many years now is I really care about ecological philosophy and I've been organizing shows for many years and and writing music for a long time. I try to, in everything I do, make sure that it is grounded in place in some way. And so I think a lot about place and what makes a place unique. Live performance is really important, and live performance happens in specific places. Given that New music historically has occupied this very elite position, and I think there's a lot of gatekeeperism. And so I've been thinking a lot about, well, how do we create community space? How do we think maybe less so about what is the music we're presenting, though that's super important. How do we create an event that an audience might feel a shared sense of community investment in so that they really want to be in that space. And I think that there's a lot of ways that you can do that. And then I think specifically in Calgary, we have a really diverse set of small flowerings of musical communities that have been going on for a long time. An example is when I was a teenager, I was really involved with the all ages punk scene. Going out to live shows at community halls was so important to me in developing a sense of identity. A lot of these artistic seeds, but also activist seeds, like there was a lot of community organizing involved with that. And then there's also the Bug Incision performance series. I think there's opportunity to take new music and have it form stronger relationships with these existing music cultures. Lots of people in Calgary don't even know that New Works Calgary exists because it's kind of so quiet and small. And I think that there's just a lot more engagement with the community that we can be doing. We would love to grow our audience, but to have 
a particular goal in mind feels strange, but I think that the first way and the best way to approach that is through community. If, if we need to really make meaningful relationships with people who aren't currently coming to our concerts, I agree with Rebecca that there's so many different little communities of people in Calgary and like niche scenes that are really blossoming. I'm really optimistic that there's an energy there that is sort of excited about experimental music. There's an energy around people who are excited to get out and spend time in these live music spaces. And that when it's safe to do so again, um, that harnessing that is going to be really exciting and fun and nice. (laughs) Something else I would just add to that, that Leslie and I have talked about a fair bit is there's also been kind of a trend in the more indie rock and pop worlds of ears are growing wider. And maybe I often use political terminology. I feel like audiences are more left-leaning than they were a decade or 15 years ago. Um, And I think that there's maybe, or what I've seen across Canada, like in Toronto, there's the Long Winter series. And in Calgary, there's Sled Island. Festivals like that, that were traditionally very focused around rock and pop, Um, independent record label rock and pop music are now starting to host more kinds of music that are a little more out there. And those kinds of of events tend to be quite successful. They draw a lot of audience members in. So I think there's also a question for us of, it's not that audiences are not interested in this, but I think it needs to be presented in a way where they can see the connection maybe to what they're already feeling really passionate about. And then this other thing that's maybe just a step beyond what they're accustomed to. I think this topic ties in a little bit with something I wanted to ask you about, and that's the word accessibility. With New Music Edmonton, we started talking a few years ago about accessibility for our events mainly in terms of physical accessibility. We've been talking more recently about what kind of barriers do we put up that we don't even realize we're putting up. I'm wondering whether you've been talking about the same thing. It's very front of mind. Thinking about barriers like there's the physical barriers. Is the, is the space physically accessible? There's um, financial barriers. Is, is there an option for people to attend the concert if they can't afford it? How's the location? Is it accessible via transit? Is there parking? Are people going to be able to get there? Then there's also things like, is there a preconception that you have to have a a degree in music to understand what's happening at this concert? Is it a space that's actually welcoming? Like, are, are people going to feel safe and comfortable going there if they don't know anything about the music? We, we've been talking about putting in place policies and practices around safe spaces for everybody in attendance. I think that there are so many different things that could prevent somebody from coming to a concert. And the pandemic has thrown an interesting angle at that too, because now there's the element of accessibility for things online. Is there a streaming element if people can't be there in person? Is that an option that you want to have? How do you account for if somebody's visually impaired? How do you account for if somebody's 
audibly impaired. There's lots of different angles and things to take into consideration that I think we want to be very proactive about going forward. But because we haven't actually done concerts yet, we haven't fully been able to put those things into place. Yeah, so I think the other side of accessibility is also the term equity. And one part of accessibility is who are we giving platform to? And do our audience members see themselves reflected in the kind of content that we're programming? I think all of us over over the summer, we saw any number of statements being made by people in the arts. And I'm wondering if you had solutions for New Works Calgary that you wanted to implement. Yeah, a big part of that is undergoing a program run by CommunityWise in Calgary called the Anti-Racist Organizational Change Program, which is a starting point for the organization to start thinking about our place in this system and to give some context to our board of directors for this work that we want to do. Calgary is in itself a really diverse multicultural city. How can we make the programming that we are presenting, both the people on stage and the composers who are being represented, representative of the city that we live in and the region that we live in? We also have been working with a consultant around just equity and accessibility on the broader sense. The starting point for us is programming, and it's also being very intentional and careful about how we roll things out and checking our own biases along the way, and also calling on other people and using the resources we have to help them check our biases as well. It's going to change the way we work in a very significant way. We want to really provide a lot of detail on why this matters in our field. And we feel that there's an ongoing disconnect within new music culture, but it's, it's not even within new music culture. I think it's even for ourselves of trying to understand for ourselves, how does the murders of black men, innocent black men at the hands of police relate to cultural programming, not just saying that we're going to do better and making a commitment to that, though I think that's valuable and important, really working to understand where these connections are. I think another thing in terms of programming, a big push for us has been widening the bracket of what can be included on a New Works program. And Newark's Calgary has some pretty good funding right now. We're in a really nice, stable funding position. And that means that we can offer musicians proper money, proper compensation yeah. <laughs> for their work in a really micro sense, um, can be a valuable way of redistributing resources mm-hmm. um, that would normally be going to white people and predominantly white men we still see it across Canadian new music programming, all white male composers being programmed in a season, which at this point I just think is totally inexcusable. There's no reason why we need to see season programs that look like that anymore. 
and that that is on us to just do a bit more work um, and really think hard about these things. What would you like New Works Calgary to look like in two or three years after you've been the artistic directors for a period? Should we share our ultimate North Star? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Go for it. A dream we both have would be to have a community center-like venue where we can put on new music concerts that are of a really high caliber. We can continue to present some of the, the canonical new music people, but it's more of a yes and approach of what can also be included. We're saying what else can be included within that and how can we share our resources and how can this be more community oriented so it feels more like a we with less clear divisions between performer and audience and elite and non-elite. And so we have kind of this dream of this community center where we could offer free workshops, but then it's also a really beautiful venue and that we could also use the space for other kinds of groups to come in and so that it's kind of bringing together these values that Leslie and I are both rooted in. And Leslie was sending me messages <laughs> while I was talking that she said she also went to punk shows at community <laughs> centers. And, and so I think when I think about, well, what kinds of spaces uh, do I want this to look like? I want it to look more like that where it's sort of a, a space of experimental community exploration. You want it to be a physical space that you mm -hmm. own or rent? Yeah. yeah. I think it's, it's kind of like thinking of the physical space as being a North Star goal is kind of a manifestation of like, this is the space that could house everything that we love and facilitate all of the things that we want to see happen. You know, we could have... I mean, there's lots of ideas that we've been throwing all around, but you know, what if there were, what if there was gear, instruments, like equipment that people could use that they could rent at the space so that artists who maybe don't have access to that could come in and use the space. And, and it would mm -hmm. also be a way for us to draw in other elements, other people from the community who may need space, who may want to engage with us in what we're doing. And I, I think that, by focusing on those values of, of what sorts of workshops would we want to see and would people be excited about and how do we really build these relationships in a sincere way through our performances and through the community engagement that we do. You're listening to The No Normal featuring an interview with Rebecca Bruton and Leslie Hinger, co-artistic directors of New Works Calgary. We'll pause the conversation for a moment to share an excerpt from Leslie Hinger's composition, Cute, Meaningless, written in 2018 for New Works Calgary and performed here by Stephanie Chua and Veronique Mathieu.
New Music Edmonton is a not-for-profit arts organization and is dependent on a vast array of sponsors, members, and volunteers. Funding for this season's presentations, including this podcast, has been provided by the Canada Council for the Arts, the Alberta Foundation for the Arts, Canadian Heritage, SOCAN Foundation, Alberta Gaming and Liquor, and the City of Edmonton. We thank them all for their generosity and continued commitment to recognizing the vital role that the arts play in our lives. Thanks also to the members, volunteers, and NME staff and board members who keep it all together and happening for New Music Edmonton. And of course, thank you for joining us. This is episode four of New Music Edmonton's The No Normal Podcast. I'm your host, Oscar Zibbert. We'll continue now with more from our conversation between Leslie Hinger, Rebecca Bruton, and Ian Crutchley. Let's talk about being artists a little bit now. And we'll start with Leslie, and maybe you can talk to me a little bit about the way that you're thinking as an artist these days, in terms of where you've been and kind of what you're looking at, maybe even including some things you've been thinking about or doing while while the pandemic has been on. You know, it actually does tie kind of directly into what we're talking about before when I said that the pandemic is sort of reinforcing how we were already starting to feel and the steps we were starting to take. And I, I feel that same thing in myself as an artist. I think that in previous years, I haven't been writing very much. I've, I've taken a step back from it. 
struggling to find a balance between writing for myself and writing music that I think is going to be really interesting. The pandemic, I think, has given me a lot of time to think about that and really just makes me sort of double down on the thought, um, the need to step outside of my comfort zone in terms of what I would normally do. The things that I like about music and the things that I value about being in those performance spaces and working with artists is really changing. And I am much more um, interested in building relationships with performers and with other musicians and with other composers and creating something with them than I am just writing something for people. And that's not something I have a huge amount of experience with. And so I'm excited to go down that path and decenter myself in the process, may have everything be more collaborative. Nice. Do, do those collaborations include musicians or are you seeing this as being something multidisciplinary? I'm seeing it as both in terms of like things I'm working on right now or will be working on in the near future. It's all based around musicians, but I would love for it to be more interdisciplinary as well. I, I also think that in the past, I've really just focused on going from commission to commission and I haven't done much writing just for fun. And so I would love to do more, more interdisciplinary projects that are actually just for fun and that aren't based around, um, you know, a commissioning structure in the future. Yes, I've, I have to admit that I've enjoyed some, some time to really just scratch around on pieces of paper and think and write in my notebook with no goals. <laughs> it's been kind of, kind of nice. Well, and I know Rebecca does a lot of that too, right? Rebecca, like you have so many different streams of, of what music is for you. Um, and I find that very inspiring to see the different kinds of projects that you're working on at any given time. It's hell. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's the end of the podcast. I'm going to have just, it's hell. <laughs> Do, do, Rebecca, do you feel like uh, the last nine months or so, every time I ask somebody this, it's another month added, isn't it? Um, <laughs> Rebecca, yes. Do you feel like the pandemic has kind of changed your perspective on creativity or are you just finding that it's reinforcing the way that you have already been thinking? I think the way I feel now is very different than I felt even like two weeks ago. Mm. I definitely have moved through a lot of, like, I mean, at the beginning of the pandemic, I had just, I had just written a bunch of material. I felt really kind of lost and not feeling super motivated about making music, like just really not interested in doing it. Um, one thing that did become positive pattern for me is a return to having a musical instrument practice. I've been learning guitar over the past year and a half. And during the pandemic, I've really committed to having a daily practice. And I think as a composer, I, I haven't perceived my work so much in terms of practice. There's something really anchoring about having an instrument that you return to every day, no matter what. And then I've been studying with this, uh, South African guitar player named Derek Gripper. He teaches um, Malian, so West African 
Cora music through the guitar, and he hosts daily classes. So it's daily for an hour. A group of musicians meet online in a group, and that has really been an anchoring point. And I've found a lot of just sense of like maybe what drew me to music in the first place of its people hanging out together, hanging out with my friends, um, doing this thing that we really like. And that guitar group is extremely nerdy as well. I'm practicing live improvised counterpoint. So I'm singing one line and then playing the guitar on the other line. And that just feels like, I don't know if that'll show up in my composition, but it feels like a really anchoring practice. I'm listening to a lot of like kind of lowercase noise music and a lot of female electronic producers. And that's leading to whole new worlds that I hadn't really explored yet. Is there anything that either of you wanted to talk about and have known through the New Music Edmonton podcast? I guess we should say that we will have um, some programming this spring. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. Um, um, we will have on the horizon um, uh, an online workshop with the Bazzini Quartet. Um, we, the exact date and content is not yet finalized, but it will likely be in mid February. We're hoping it'll be just a couple hours long, an afternoon event that will be open to absolutely everybody. And then we'll have a double bill with Hermitess and Jessica McMahon. Um, and this one we're super excited about because we've actually commissioned them to do a collaborative piece. So Hermitess is a, a folk musician who sings and plays the harp. And Jessica McMahon is an Indigenous composer who also is a dancer and choreographer. And then at the end of our season, we're doing a co-presentation with Springboard Performance, where a new piece with Vanessa Goodman, who's a dancer, and composer Caroline Shaw but that'll be third weekend in May. It seems to me that I saw most marvelous dream more wonderful
You've been listening to our conversation with Rebecca Bruton and Leslie Hinger, the incoming artistic directors of New Works Calgary, followed by an excerpt from Rebecca Bruton's work, The Turning Larch, performed by Swan Herds, live at the Canadian Music Centre in Toronto. For more information on New Works Calgary and their team, please go to newworkscalgary.com. Gary James Joins is a renowned audio and visual artist known both under his own name and for his project Clinker. He's been a prolific solo artist and collaborator. Popular with critics and audiences, Joins has numerous awards and commissions to his credit. As part of our new music for the No Normal Project, sponsored by the Edmonton Arts Council, NME has commissioned his upcoming work, Sonic Sons Genesis. Artist Sidney Lancaster spoke with Joins for this program. Perhaps a good place to start is with something I read on your website about your earlier 12 Tones project. And in the statement about that project, you said, Tonal energy featured in cultures the world over has been used to promote meditation and enlightenment. Similarly, mandalas and non-object-based imagery have represented the unknowable and the infinite. Perhaps these sonic forms have an innate and synesthetic connection to the visual content of our disparate cultures. So my question to you is, is that an impetus to your work overall? Yeah, I think fundamentally, I'm always, when I start anything, it starts with this pure sound that I find, that I tune, and then from there, everything flows out from that. It's always coming from that moment of going, yeah, that's where we need to start. And often, I think I would even find notes inside the tempered scale. There's not just 12 notes. There's an infinite amount of notes inside there. And there's no exception even in the Sonic Suns piece. The inspiration came from Broken Sound in my own installation, watching the beams that I'd created cross over and me going, wow, maybe I could put sound through light in some way. How would that work? How could I possibly make that work? Yeah. And then I started thinking about using water and realizing even watching Broken Sound that every one of those single beams was connected to a bright spot on the screen or a point of light. I thought, wait a minute, with water, I could actually tune and pulse and compose moments where I'm moving these pinpoint moments of light around. And then when you draw a line through space, through a particulate like fog, or that, that line would be moving. And I thought, man, that might, that might be the solution. The things that always resonate for me with your work, and I guess it's because I'm kind of in the same, the same headspace, is those ideas about boundaries and slippages between states. And you mentioned the ebb and flow in your writing about this new project. It's also loss and recuperation. But at the root, it's about growth and transformation. That act of seeing and that close examination of, of the impact of a whole range of things, but including our actions and the changes they create. It's a transformation that defies movement towards resolution. You just got me thinking about even what I'm creating, like the Sonic Suns are the, the, one of the core foundations for the bigger project. And when I'm in the moment of working with the wave tank and, you know, none of these images that I'm showing 
happened right away. It's really about finessing the right tones and the right finding that dynamic in the liquid that really revealed this, you know, the, almost like these creatures would come up out of nowhere. Like at the very beginning, there's almost like those chrome light sections that start, they look like amoebas that are coming up. And it was like, that was again, a magic moment where I just hit what you're talking about, that perfect in-between moment that resonated somehow that I could never have anticipated, but recognized immediately and like, well, wait a minute, what's going on? And then backing it off going, Oh God, it's gone. Okay. Can I get it back again? Okay. I'm just reverse what you did crossing your fingers. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's starting. Oh, so this is a very fine tuned moment of resonance and crossing over uh, an interference of sound that's disturbing that liquid in a way that it's creating that. And then it's like, Whoa, okay. Let that just, let's just let that happen. For a while. And sit yeah. with it. Yes. And find out what it means. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, absolutely. Or even finding moments where there's two of them that are kind of playing off each other. I'm always trying to imagine in the gallery space, the dynamic and, and, you know, people moving around and filling the space and making the whole space kind of active, you know? Yeah, that's, that's something that, that I've always really appreciated in your installation work is the attention that you have paid to creating that immersive environment so that the viewer becomes actually a participant. I don't want to tell the viewer or the listener what to experience. I want to set a moment up for them to explore it themselves and, yes. and, put them in, and put them into the work. And then all of a sudden, it's a whole new piece. Some people walk in, and depending on you know, where they are at, they would sit with it for a little bit. But other people would sit for hours and like really go on the trip. And then the, the, the golden bonus is when they come back and tell you where they went. And you're just like, wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I've had similar experiences with some of the installation work that I've shown the last couple of years. Yeah. And it's been just, it's so deeply rewarding. It is. It's the most and rewarding. You know, yeah. you've had this incredible conversation with somebody and it is transformative. And there's always that invitation to constantly ask what next okay so sonic suns given the the titles of the different movements we've been talking about ebb and flow we've been talking about the physicality of sound here we've got the physicality of sound in relationship with the four elements and so I'm really interested in whether that was sort of an overweening thing when you had that first best moment, that beginner's mind moment when you went, oh, this with the water, with the, the fluid cymatics, and went, oh, but then I can go and I could go and I could go. So what am I talking about here? I said to you in the email, I thought, you know, Sonic Sun literally plays, literally and metaphorically, with fire and water. So there's this balance of opposites. One doesn't cancel out the other. It creates something new. Where initially my answer would have been, no, no, I'm not playing with fire. It's liquid and it's sound. And... But then I was like, maybe I am. Well, visually, you, you know, visually, you certainly are. I mean, there, there are always incredible sort of generative resonances in 
the visual part of this work that just had me pinging off the walls. There's the sun, there's solar flares, there's cells, it's cellular division, it's, it's all of that stuff. And, you know, admittedly, there was a coronavirus moment in there too. Very interesting to think about why those moments come out the way they do. I did recognize when they were and I pushed to do it more because I thought they were beautiful. Little extensions of the corona. That reaching, that, that, yeah. that sort of that idea of expanse and stretching, stretching one's wings or what it's like when a little bird pops out of an egg, right? And that, that first mm-hmm. stretch and shake out and you're like, what the hell just happened? Okay. You know, that, that kind of, those moments are there too. The water, amniotic fluid, yeah. I, that was one of the things that just hit me. It's all sort of there. Even right now in this conversation, it sparked something in my mind about the even going back to the idea of fire. Because again, I, I'm never intending to like, you know, push my speakers to a place where they're they're burning inside and they're dying slowly. <laughs> but in order even to get these moments for like a real dynamic moments, I know because I can smell the voice coil cooking and it fills the room up, and I'm like, oh boy. I'm right really close for to this one being over. So I am playing with fire in that sense too, where I'm like underneath what's happening to make those really dynamic moments happen. And often like you can't see it from this perspective, but the water is like flying like two feet off the, like in one of the real dynamic moments and everything's getting soaked. Like it's just, a, it's a mess. It's a total mess. It sounds and, then, and I and I and I yeah and I did burn one speaker on one of these machines again, which I thought okay I think I'm done. I'm not running the wave driver anymore, which is very very obviously a part of pushing those experiments in 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 the way that I came together with my machine. And I came to realize that that was simply a part of the process. That in order to find those moments that really intrigued me. Uh, and really got to build the relief up or the dynamic of the visual images or even the animated moments that I was capturing always were right at the very edge of blowing the speaker up. We had been talking about sacred toning and chants and that idea of the drone in Sonic Suns and your other work. That brings me to the audio piece that you've provided for this podcast, the excerpt of Labyrinth Studies number one. Tell us about that. It's really lovely. Yeah, so essentially that whole thing is uh, commissioned from, again, from Brian Webb Dance Company. One of the members of that group is Deepak Paramishivan, and Brian's been working with him a little bit over the last year or so. But he's a master of the Indian Sarangi. It's a bowed instrument that is in, heard in all traditional Indian music. It's one of the lead instruments. Brian brought Deepak to work. Unfortunately, because of the corona lockdown that came up, they weren't able to get together with the dance ensemble and work. But we were able to, before that all hit, uh, me and Deepak did get together. And I mic'd him a simple uh, one microphone on a Sarangi, one vocal mic. 
I had one vocal mic and a modular synthesizer uh, that I built specifically for this to create these drones. And December 15th, we'd never played together. We'd never even talked about what we would do. And I hit record and what this section just happened. We started singing together. I've got over an hour and a half for almost two hour recording. That's one little five minute excerpt of a beautiful moment I thought that really stands on its own as a piece. What a lovely, lovely, lovely gift for New Year. Having listened to that and been quite wrapped by it, where do you see the human voice fitting into environments that you create? Well, I've always felt if there was an instrument that was a portal to the human heart immediately, mm-hmm. it's the power of the voice, like just to, to penetrate and pierce is the word I'm looking for, that, that, that piercing ability of the voice. I've used that a lot in my live performances. I often will mm-hmm. sing and have found that that seems to be a real pivotal moment for a, like a, a lot of emotion to get translated and that energy wave that's translated through the voice. You talked about working in the pandemic and how we've been hunkered down and things, but it seems like it's, like it's been very productive for you. Um, yeah, but yeah. Where, is it, where is it going? So it's going into more research into music. Well, there's, yeah, there's tons of things happening. I'm also working with a visual artist named Brad Nessick and we're doing yeah. a ton of work together. We actually made an eight-channel uh, audiovisual piece that's finished now. A major portion of that will be included in the Brian Webb performance. And we're working on two new, uh, really long-form experimental films currently. Then there's also the new collective that we started with Aaron Munson and Brad and Marilyn Oliver. It's called Distant Early Warning. We just literally dropped on Instagram yesterday the first note on what that is. And you can find it on Instagram, Distant Early Warning. It starts uh, announcing the Dewline newsletter for the 21st century, a startling, shocking early warning system of our era of instant change. I think of art at its most significant as a Dewline, a distant early warning system that can always be relied on to tell the old culture what is beginning to happen to it. And that was a quote from Marshall McLuhan.
That was Labyrinth Studies number one, featuring Gary James Joins and Deepak Padmashivan, a collaboration for a forthcoming project involving the Brian Webb Dance Company. Joins' newly commissioned work for New Music Edmonton, Sonic Sons Genesis, will be released soon on our Vimeo page. Before Labyrinth Studies number one, a conversation between Joins and artist Sidney Lancaster. To learn more about these two artists, visit clinkersound.com and sydneylancaster.com. We've come to the end of this edition of No Normal. Thank you to all the artists for sharing their thoughts and their work, and special thanks to Sydney Lancaster for her interview. To learn more about our programming, please visit newmusicedmonton.ca. The No Normal podcast was created by Caitlin Sean Richards and Ian Crutchley for New Music Edmonton and is produced and hosted by me, Oscar Zebart. <laughs>